Value Economics Podcast. Six million ways to die. Choose one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Value Economics Podcast. I'm your host, Sam LaCrosse. Can you dig it? I can. And I can especially today because today is one of my favorite posts of the year. It is my best books of the year podcast and article. I cannot wait to dive into this. I had a fantastic year reading last year. I wanted to hit a book a week. I did that. I did that probably more effectively than I ever had, which was awesome. So these posts are super fun because I love giving good recommendations and especially good recommendations where you can take an opinion for yourself and learn something and all that fun stuff. So I like to do this at the end of the year specifically because I, I've absorbed a lot of content. I have to absorb a lot of content for my job and it's always good when you can really sort through the muck because a lot of it is a lot of muck to get to a point of this was really awesome and you should go ahead and read this because it's really awesome. So that's what I wanted to do specifically today with all of the content that I have absorbed specifically in books. I get most of my direction from books in terms of where I want to go with my content, what I want to talk about, what I want to read, etc. So with that being said, without further ado, let's just get right into it. I can't wait to show these to the world. You probably have already heard of them in some cases if you've been listening or reading for a while, but I want to reiterate them and go into why all of them in this post. So with that being said, here we go. So as said before, in a lot of different ways, my love of short lists will probably never get old. They definitely will never get old. And this one, as I said earlier, however, always holds a special place in my heart. I love reading and I love getting better at reading. As I've said more times than I can remember, there is nothing that has informed my content more than the books that I read and the people that I allowed who occupy space in my head. They have provided an invaluable voice on how I see myself, the world, and what I want to do in the future. The point of these lists is to give you the best of this material and how it can hopefully shape you to do the same. In total, I wanted to read 52 books this year, and I accomplished that mission and then some, which was a very pleasant surprise given all I had going on. My biggest concern was upping the ante from the previous year to a point where it would dilute the overall quality of the material that I read. While this was the case in some of the books that I read, it wasn't nearly the case in all of them. This is my favorite year of reading that I ever done, like I mentioned earlier, and I hope that trend continues to move upward in that direction. The biggest reason I can contribute to this would be all that the reading that I did, for the most part, was done with a purpose. I wanted to do specific research on specific topics, most of which centered around narcissism and our culture's obsession with the self. I did that and it proved to help tremendously in building out a monster skeleton for my next book. I'm already about 50% of the way done with it and I hope to publish it at the end of next year. Additionally, I did something that I wanted to do for a long time but simply had not prioritized. I dove into fiction again for the first serious time in a long time this year, and it was wonderful. It lubricated a part of my brain that had not moved nor functioned properly in a long time, and it unlocked a lot of pent-up creative ideas that I had. It feels like a muscle group is finally awakened to help out the rest of my brain. It's awesome, and I'm going to do my best to keep working in those veins going into this next year, with the goal of hopefully making a creative fiction of my work of my own by year's end. That fiction reading, combined with the intentionality of my non-fiction writing, informed a lot of my reading going into this next year. For the focus of next year's work, I intend to focus on work that centers around human suffering and triumph, and what makes people go through these things to become the inspiration they are today. My research will be centered essentially on what makes a modern hero, and the one quality that I believe to undergird all of them. I'm confident in my assertions, but I'm interested to see what more I can find out and if I'm right or wrong. But until then, my best books list for 2023 is in, and it's a heater. These books go all over the place, and I'm very confident that a person who's curious about the subject material will find enjoyment out of all of them. 
They are in some cases very hard, in some cases very easy to read. However, they will all challenge you, inform you, and do the best they can to educate you about some of the most complicated matters of life. I enjoyed them tremendously, and I hope you do too. So, without further ado, here they are. Honorable Mention, The Terminalist by Jack Carr, written in 2018. Before last summer, as mentioned earlier, I had stopped reading fiction almost entirely. I had no direction of where to take my reading. Nothing interested me. It all seemed too far-fetched, too artistic, too airy-fairy, too beyond the pale of what I was to consider entertaining. Nothing at the bookstores that I visited broached my interest. I didn't think it was in the cards for me to get hooked into a brand of book that I once loved. And then Amazon Prime happened. Over the prior summer, all anyone was talking about at my boxing gym, Archetype Boxing Club, was a new show that they had seen that was apparently one of the most badass series in the history of streaming. It was starring Chris Pratt as the main character and had people like Taylor Kitsch and J.D. Pardo in the supporting cast. It was apparently ridiculously violent, which, in a boxing gym, is always strategy for popularity. I took the feedback for what it was, stored in the back of my mind, and pressed on. Over the next few months, the name Jack Carr kept coming up. Joe Rogan had him on his podcast multiple times, as did many other people. I quickly readied the name of the heralded, readied the name of the heralded Amazon Prime series, The Terminal List, was the name of Jack Carr's debut book of the same name. And this struck me as odd. No one, particularly people at a boxing gym, think novelists are deserving of a streaming series, let alone one that appeals to that demographic of people. Most of them suck, or at least appeal to a different breed of people. So, while I was at the Painted Porch, Ryan Holiday's bookshop in Bastrop, Texas, I saw a rugged and used copy of Carr's book detailing the series and the opening of James Reese, the title character, headed up a whole shelf dedicated to the series and the author. I pulled it out, placed it on top of three others, and bought it. As time passed, I needed a new show to watch. After getting it with my boxing team, they all confirmed that the terminal list was, indeed, the shit. However, principled as I am, I made a vow to myself that I would never again watch something that had been first written. So, after collecting dust on my bookshelf for more than half a year, I pulled it out, flipped it open, and began to read Carr's debut novel. Brad Thor, the serial novelist who was one of the greatest thrill writers of our time, so the Jack Carrs, who helped get him in the door of Simon & Schuster, debut novel was maybe the greatest debut novel that he'd ever read. This is a big compliment coming from someone like Brad Thor. He reads a lot of books. He's a writer himself. This is high praise, particularly from one of the most celebrated writers in a very competitive and hard genre to write in. However, I am here to officially confirm any and all of Brad Thor's endorsements of Jack Carr, most specifically the one mentioned. I tore through the terminal list like nobody's business. In the words of his friend Joe Rogan, it was fucking riveting. I was hooked from the jump. It read like a movie, the chapters perfectly punctuated like scenes in a movie would be. The violence was beautiful, providing a wonderful change from the tone-deaf versions of Revenge and War that we've seen populate both the big and the small screens. When I did more research into Jack Carr, I quickly discovered how impressive he was. He's one of the most well-roundedly smart people I've ever seen, knowing many things about many things. After that validation, I was sold. I bought the rest of the series, and I'm currently on his fifth book, In the Blood, in the series now. All of them are great, but the terminal list, I feel, will hold a very special place in my heart for a very long time. In any other listing I would do, Carr's debut novel would rank much higher. However, it's not on this list for two reasons. Being them good reasons or not, I'm not sure. First, the books ahead of it are re also really fucking good, which is the primary. Second, I find myself tending to reward one-off books that greatly shape my perspective and focus. Cars certainly did that, which is why it holds as the first fiction book to ever make this list. And I have a feeling it will not be the last. His work is fantastic, and I can't wait to read it for a long time.
and you should too. Number five, Tucker by Chadwick Moore, written in 2023. I hated Tucker Carlson three years ago. I couldn't stand him, his flaunty arrogance and hair and the way he spoke to people. However, that began to change as I began to change when I realized who Tucker Carlson and everyone else really was and what they were really about. What you will see when you dive into the psychology of any person, but particularly someone like Tucker Carlson, is that they are most likely very complicated and nuanced people. There are a lot of things at work at almost all times. Three years later, I don't think there's a single cultural figure I value more than I value Tucker Carlson. This is a remarkable change, one that I never thought that would happen with anyone, let alone someone who seemingly everyone either loves or hates. I think that's its polarization that's brought me to him. I think that as someone who believes polarization can be incredibly important, regardless of what that polarization does, I was eager to see what made it up. The main reason for the polarization surrounding Tucker Carlson is very simple. He grew up as a privileged boy to a single father. His mother abandoned him and his family at an early age to abscond to France to be an artist. His father was a competent and powerful journalist and a media executive. Carlson's stepmother was the descendant of one of the most prominent food companies in the world. They had never had to want for anything. He went to the finest prep schools in the country. He took a job in the media and got famous very young. He married his high school sweetheart and had four children with her. He traveled the world. He talked to the most powerful people in it. He had everything that most people in Carlson's position of influencing the public via mass media and political commentary wanted. But Carlson didn't want it. After the first 30 years of his life, he began to despise how the people that defined his entire existence lived, their elitism, their snobbery, their, their disgust for people who they deemed beneath them. When Donald Trump did the same thing in 2016, the switch finally flipped. Carlson fi- finally figured out why everything in the world was happening. He became the media version of Nostradamus, masterfully pivoting his show from what was a fervent neoconservative worldview to a nationalist populist, igniting both fury and passion from both sides of the political aisle. And, most remarkably of all, as detailed by his good friend Chadwick Moore, his lifestyle became a lot better as a result. He moved, albeit after Antifa attacked his home and his family, to some of the most remote parts of the country, permanently relocating his life and his studio to get more out towards the things that he valued. He doesn't own a television, operate any of his social media, or listen to podcasts. He gets out in nature. He has coffee with his wife every morning. He talks to his brother and his father daily. He's localized his life to such an extreme that no one can touch him. This was most evident when he was fired from Fox News after giving a speech at the Heritage Foundation. Getting ousted on the same day as his much lampooned folly Don Lemon, people thought that they were pulling the plug on Tucker Carlson. Instead, they gave their worst enemy a gateway to be a pioneer of X-streaming, using Elon Musk's newest contraption to broadcast his message to the heights of more than 400 million views in a matter of weeks, 100xing his nightly numbers on Fox. What I love most about Tucker Carlson is how he finds value in things that are real. When you look around and analyze the world, there are very few people that choose to do this. They put their faith in the things that are far-reaching. Money, status, power, etc. Carlson, on the contrary, chooses to put himself in the things that are within five feet of him. His family, his faith, the nature that surrounds him, his work, his staff, his nation. Carlson is far from a person who is perfect, but he is certainly a person that is real. Someone who has rejected every social norm that seemingly every person is prescribed to follow in our current orthodoxy. He is someone that should be admired for who he is, not for whom everyone else wishes to be. Number four, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, 
written in 1941. As I officially was reborn again in April, I wanted to do work beforehand to make sure I knew what I was getting into when it came to my renowned interest and dedication to my faith journey. The person that I, and seemingly every other believer who was drawn to, was C.S. Lewis. Having known Lewis primarily, as most people do, from his Chronicles of Narnia books, I was skeptical about what this man could teach me about anything related to the realm of my new reality. It was Lewis's backstory that most intrigued me as I was going through the process. Lewis, like me, was a born-again Christian, having been an atheist most of his life before moving towards faith after seeing the horrors of war and the collapse of society into totalitarianism in the first half of the 20th century. Lewis, therefore, did not come to faith ideologically, as most early believers do. Rather, he had to come to faith the hard way, the only way that I and many could do so, by seeing that it was the only option that made sense. Through his own discoveries and recognitions about faith as it acted in the world, Lewis wrote constantly about how faith and the real world intersected. A big reason why his children's book series was so popular was for this reason. A messianic figure, the only person who could save the world, was the constant throughout the entire cast of characters. Some stayed loyal to him, but most didn't. Those who did were rewarded with eternal life. Those who did not went away from him, getting their misguided wish at the end of their adventure. It's the Bible, just the talking line instead of Christ. Knowing this, I purchased the multi-book series of Lewis's canon on theology, reading every one of them but his magnum opus, Mere Christianity, which I expect to tackle sometime next year. All of them proved to be very insightful, helpful, and raw. I began to see Lewis's side of where he was coming from. Even though our denominations of faith are very different with him being a Catholic and me being an evangelical Christian. However, there was one subject that I never thought I would agree on that made me see clear as day, or that he made me see clear as day, rather. Even as I dove deep into my faith, I was never able to draw the recognition between the real world and our talk and walks of things like demons, evil, and Satan. I thought that it was an old wives' tale, something that was only used to scare people back in the day when they didn't have things like empiricism and science to fall back on. However, with one book, Lewis made not only me recognize that I was wrong, but that I was so wrong that I needed to shift my entire worldview. The Screwtape Letters is written from the perspective of Wormwood, a demon who is writing letters to quote Screwtape, his master. Wormwood is on an assignment from Screwtape to convert a human test subject from a Christian into a non-believer, one who will turn his back on God for the satanic side of evil. The way that Wormwood chooses to do this is by using the world around him, our beloved Earth, to confuse his victim in order to turn away from God's grace and bring him into the clutches of the enemy. Even though the book was written more than 75 years ago, it's absolutely stunning to see how relevant and long-standing the temptations of this world are. From everything to believing the lies that people tell about us, to knowing how humans are tempted to give up and lose endurance, to the provocations of anger and lust, every way Wormwood pokes his victim is exactly how all of us are poked. Even more terrifying, it shows how easy it is to do, to worm your way into the clutches of these people that want nothing but the worst for you. If nothing else, the Screwtape letter shows you not only that evil is real, but way more real and way more of a thing than most of us could ever hope to realize. This is a very scary thing, but also a thing that everyone should be aware of. When growing up, we would visit a family in Cincinnati and drive past a billboard that said, Hell is real. If only they knew just how right they were. Number 3. Never Finished by David Goggins, published in 2022. When I first saw David Goggins, I thought he was a caricature, like a bad character in an even worse movie. He seemed to be too unreal, too outlandish to even exist. 
The crazier part was that as I dove more into Goggins' life, it turned out that I was more right than I ever anticipated. David Goggins blew away all my expectations, which were very high given what people had said about him for years. As I dove into his first book, Can't Hurt Me, my overwhelming feeling about any and all things David Goggins was completely complete and utter disbelief. I was right to believe that he was a construct, because David Goggins had to construct everything about his life from the ground up. However, when Goggins announced via his Instagram that he was publishing his second book with my ill-fated publisher, Scribe Media, I couldn't help but initially cringe. His first book had gone so hard, changed so many lives, and made him one of the most helpful and relatable self-help influencers in the world that I didn't think he had anything left to give. I thought he had emptied the clip, dropped the mic, leaving the rest of the world in awe. I didn't think there was much more to say about David Goggins. He was still a beast, one of the greatest examples of human striving the world has to offer. But I thought, from what I had seen, that his story had been told. But in true Goggins fashion, he proved me and a lot of other people wrong once again. Never Finished proved to be one of the few creative works that was rightly deserving of a sequel, or of being a sequel, rather. It's one thing to tell a story of an underdog and how that person came to transcend their circumstances. It's quite another to tell how you kept that dog in you when you crested the top of that mountain. Yet, surprisingly, Goggins' second book did not do either of those things. Instead, in a wild third route, it showed how Goggins, on a never-ending quest to show how suffering is the greatest teacher, broke himself down even further than he already had, made himself suffer even more, to prove that he could go through a secondary transformation when he never had to do anything else again. In his own words, he's addicted to it. He feeds off of it. This is who he is. The thing that impresses me so much about David Goggins, the thing that he won me over, was that regardless of where he is, he never feels like he has made it. This stands out to me because I know I can never be that person. I don't want to be that person. He chases misery and unhappiness. He is happiest when he is going through the worst things in his life. He has destroyed most everything around him over his pursuit of individual greatness. Most people in a position like David Goggins, when they're such a dog in a certain area of life, would never own this fact. They would say that they have it all figured out, that their family is great, they see their children enough, that their wife really loves them, that they really take care of themselves. All of these things, for all people who have Goggins' wiring, are liars. Goggins himself, who is far more honest than these people, is not. David Goggins knows who he is totally. His identity has crystallized the fire of his own soul one that will never be put out by anybody, and much less himself. He knows that he's not everyone's cup of tea, that he makes a lot of people uncomfortable. His ownership of that fact, his willingness to tell quite literally everyone to go fuck themselves, is the type of courage that I admire, regardless of the fact that I would never choose his lifestyle myself. David Goggins is the owner of what I believe to be the single greatest dedication in the history of publishing, which opened his first book, Can't Hurt Me. Quote, To the little voice in my head, that will never, ever allow me to stop. The funny thing is, he's right. I don't think he will ever stop. And I, and the other people who love him, don't want him to either. Goggins is a shining beacon to a simple reality. When you go hard enough at something, more people will hate you than love you. And when this happens, you'll be far better off. Number two, Elon Musk by Walter Isaacson written in 2023. Considering that I've already beaten you good people over the head with an entire article and podcast dedicated to what I learned from this book, I will try my hardest to take a different tactic when explaining it here. There is perhaps no greater influence on the world today than Elon Musk. Even though someone like Donald Trump forces everyone to have an opinion of him, not everyone is affected 
by him. The same cannot be said for Elon Musk. He is currently offering wireless internet to people in the Middle East and the Ukraine via satellites that he owns. He has democratized the electric vehicles that seemingly everyone wants to drive. He owns the social media company that single-handedly swayed the last two presidential elections. If there is a notable space in the culture and in life, Musk is almost certain to have a hand in shaping that narrative. When Isaacson set out to craft the definitive biography to this point of the most influential man in recent human memory, he set out with a theme that, would define through, that he would define throughout his book. What type of person is Elon Musk? Is he a hero or a villain? Someone to admire or someone to fear? With Musk, he acutely saw a dichotomy that was emerging, particularly after he bought Twitter and rebranded it as X. Was Musk a Bond villain type lunatic, or was he going to drag us kicking and screaming into the saving of the world like a modern-day secular messiah? I think the brilliance of Isaacson's work with Musk, as he did in his biography on Steve Jobs, was that he was able to thread the needle between both personas to show that Musk is simultaneously both and neither of those things. He is not going to destroy the world, nor will he save the world. He is, however, doing one thing by balancing both of the extremes that we can all look to. Become better versions of ourselves. I don't run in any of the circles or occupy any of the same spaces as Elon Musk. We couldn't be more opposite from what we do and how we act. However, what I felt about reading a biography about a man I had nothing in common with was something I didn't think would happen. Inspiration. Elon Musk, like he has done his entire life, lit a fire under everything and everyone he seemed to touch, kickstarting them into gear and making them push themselves to achieve more. I'm not sure if Elon Musk is going to survive the hellstorm that's currently engulfing his life. He's currently in a custody battle with his favorite child, also named X, with his on-again, off-again girlfriend Grimes. Seemingly everyone in the political establishment hates him. Silicon Valley has almost universally condemned him as well. He doesn't have a religion, so no god is coming to save him. It's all up to him to pull off the impossibility that is his life. But strangely, one of the things I learned from Elon Musk throughout this book is that he, perhaps more than anyone, is both the creator and incubator of controlled chaos. He does not like to be bored, to be deemed as someone somehow unuseful, to be seen as someone who is content with the status quo. So, therefore, to all who know him best, he has spent his life, both for better and for worse, doing everything he can to upend every single thing that he comes across. It is this phenomenon around Musk that makes him so loved and hated by so many different groups of people, and why he is so important in our time. There is perhaps no greater sin than, uh, that our current expert, foe, and ruling classes have committed than by reinforcing and setting poor standards. The way things work has done nothing but drag us kicking and screaming into cultural rot and tyranny. To invert this, the most efficient way would be the promotion of someone that has strictly done not following that orthodoxy, that pushes against the grain so aggressively that he makes himself seem more often an enemy than a friend. This is the purpose that Elon Musk serves. Change does not happen without change agents. And I believe, and he does as well, that he is perhaps the one we need to deliver the greatest shock to the existing system. Number one, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, written in 2020. Written in 2020. Ben Shapiro has stated publicly that he reads about five books every single week. I have no idea if this is true or not, but given how smart Ben is, I wouldn't put it past him. The ability to consume information, and more importantly, to use it, is something he has done quite effectively, no matter if you agree with him or not. If most people could read five books in a week and do all the other things that Ben does along with them, they'd probably be really fucking successful too. However, with me usually struggling to get one book in a week, these statistics are nothing short of amazing. 
That's a shit ton of stamina and a shit ton of precision. A good portion of the books that I read turn out to be terrible, so I can't imagine some of the tripe that Shapiro and people that are wired like him have to sort through in that process. But on the flip side, it also means that the better the book in Shapiro's rotation, the better it most likely stands out in the overall pantheon of books that are really, really good. And recently, Shapiro has sung the praises of one book in particular. This book, according to Shapiro, is the single best book he's read in the past 10 years. If you do the math, that's first place out of exactly 2,600 books. A pretty high mark. A crazy thing is that, or the crazy thing is that, after reading it myself, I don't think he was exaggerating it in the slightest. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is probably the greatest book I've read since I read 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson back in 2020. I bought it on recommendation from Shapiro and several others because of their intensity about it, and it had a very similar effect on me. It totally blew me away. Out of any book I had read, out of any person that had written them, it was this book more than any other that was able to articulate exactly to me why our culture had done what it had done in the last couple of years to drive itself completely off a cliff. Truman's book was so straightforward, so matter-of-fact, so good, that I knew I needed to do further work with it. In my next book, Truman's catalog proved to be essential, and perhaps the linchpin, in making the argument that I make. Truman's argument that a combination of internalized narcissism, mostly catalog in a movement known as expressive individualism, plus a detachment from religious thought from the broader cultural context, is the reason for the mad derangement that we can't seem to spark ourselves out of. It's perhaps the best I've heard in explaining how things in our world have gone so awry. Citing some of the most brilliant minds in the last two centuries in psychology, philosophy, medicine, theology, and politics, Truman weaves together a cohesive argument as to why we seem to be headed towards self-destruction via untrammeled and repressive individualism. We've taken things too far, he argues. To go backwards does not mean to become Luddites, but rather to know and appreciate what got us here before our internalized narcissism took place. This is a bold claim to make for everyone, both left and right, secular and religious. However, it needed to be said. As I baked in Truman's words for months after I put the book down, I began to see this trend everywhere I looked. It's truly seeped into our culture so much that I don't believe it can be removed unless we all collectively look towards paying attention to it. But to Truman's eerie point, that's exactly the problem. We'll see if we can fix it. I look forward to at least trying my best to do so. Happy reading. One more conversation, one more podcast, and then we begin anew. See you guys in 2024. Own the day. Open your mind. Thanks for listening, everybody.